Hello and welcome to Resident Advisors Exchange, a series of conversations with the artists, labels and promoters who are shaping the electronic music landscape. My name's Ryan Keeling and I'm the editor at Resident Advisor. It's not often that you'll hear artists discussing the mistakes they've made or things like their relevancy and the gigs that they hated. And it's this exact reason that made this week's exchange interview so refreshing. Leo Paskin and Matthew Benjamin are comfortable enough in their achievements to talk honestly about their two-decade careers in dance music, and they're also candid enough to explain that the recently announced end of the Leo and Bushwhacker project was because they think the name no longer resonates with audiences in the way it once did. Much of the respect they command was due to the end, the much-loved London nightclub at which they were both resident DJs and Paskin was the co-owner. Of course, they are also highly successful producers, with an album released through Excel and a top 10 single in the UK. We sat down in London with them last month to reflect on all of this as the pair contemplated their next moves. I just wanted to start because um, the end obviously is a really central uh, part of your combined stories. Um, but I want to start by ask what you were doing in the years leading up to the end opening. Um, well, I was 17 when Acid House hit in '88, and in the first couple of years, I mean, I'd been putting on parties from about the age of late 15, early 16, um, and in those days it was kind of rare groove and hip hop, and then. I was involved in putting on one of the first parties of the Acid House thing. Very minor role, but we were helped in the promotion of a thing called Strawberry Sweatshop. And I remember there was a sort of leading in the kind of things that I was into because I was into all the dance stuff like Rare Groove and clubbing stuff and hip hop, but and electro earlier than that. But I was also into a lot of the psychedelic stuff. So there were sort of bands like the 13th Floor Elevators, Zodiac Mind Warp, um, quite sort of quite Glastonbury-led, quite out there, very psychedelic, and then that would go back to bands like Gong, Can, Craftwork, and it was sort of, there was an element of the psychedelic that when Acid House hit, because of the sort of the vibe, the atmosphere, the night, the sort of, although it's dance music, there was something kind of out there about it, straight from the off, and I think the two things combined, and then, you know, and I'm sure nearly every raver out there, you walk in the first time and it's like, you know, fuck me, this is incredible. And the first couple of years, I was very much a raver. Um, I went on a year off. I was living in Thailand for about sort of six and a half months. And then I came back and I went to university. And I started putting on parties at university every Monday, um, a night called Rhythm Formula. And Mr. C, who I knew from Clink Street and Leebridge Road, used to come up and guest. Um, Eve Letty Richards, a guy called Femi B, who's still around the scene. And, and they were the sort of guests, and I, it's when I started to sort of DJ, DJ in a kind of, ser- I guess, in a semi-serious way. And then I came back from university, I think it was 93, and I didn't really know what I was going to do. I did a variety of kind of, in the way in the music industry, sort of unpaid jobs for sort of, you know, six weeks, eight weeks there. Um, and I was doing these warehouse parties called Too Much Music. Um, and my dad's an architect I was living back at home and because it was re- the, the recession obviously his business wasn't going as well things were you know London was kind of it was not so dissimilar I guess to the era we're in now and I said to him look if you have any spaces that you're about to do work on that I can use as a warehouse you know let me know and then the conversation went you know and then a couple of months later he came 
back to me and said, well, I found this really interesting space. It used to be a stables and the owner wants to turn it into a nightclub. So he said, but you need, at the time, I mean, it doesn't sound that much now, but at the time, obviously, it was a fortune. He said, you'll need £50,000 to get the deposit, to, to get the lease. Um, and then, obviously, you have to start. And I immediately went to see Mr C, who had made all the money with the shaman, you know, was obviously riding really high. And literally, he went down the next day, saw it, and put down the money. So it was, like, super, super fast. So that's what I was doing in the lead-up to the end and a year before that sort of at the same time I met Matt what sort of a state was the space in when you found it well so where you came down the stairs it was an old it had been originally a, a stables and in AKA you could still see the signs it was where the horses they have a you know the post office system has its own tube network in London well it used to be done by horse and cart so it would go to King's Cross from where we are it would go to Holborn and it was the stables like even in the office it was all ramps with horse doors and there were all the troughs still there it was, it was in a terrible state and it was the seat it wasn't very low so in building the club we had to lower the ceiling by about i think nearly four feet in, dug into the ground so it was you know huge 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 job but the truth is they could have shown me you know uh, a shoe box and i would have gone for it it was just it was just a moment in what I was doing and I just, you, you, you know certain things in life and it was just an opportunity. And it, it happened, it was a great place, the fact it was in its own road and all those things. But it was, you know, whatever obstacle, you know, when you're really young like that, whatever obstacle you have, you're not thinking, you know, I was signing personal guarantees that would have put me in debt for like the rest of my life. I was, it, none of it mattered because I just believed that we could do it. Matthew, do you remember what the sort of lay of the land was like in London club around that time? Yeah, very much so. I mean, I feel very privileged because I started DJing at a very young age, sort of 15. And, uh, you know, I was kind of out, out and about by the time I was 16. I actually had residencies in London from the age of 17 up until pretty much when the end opened, maybe a gap of about a year. And then, obviously, I was working with Leo um, in the studio. I'd... Um, I started working, Mr. C had opened his own studio up called The Watershed, again with Shaman proceeds. And uh, as I left um, a course that I was doing at college in Britannia Row, um, a sound engineering course, I was already friends with, with C. And he said, oh, do you want to come and work in my studio assisting? So I started working there and um, did some work with Leo and we started working together at that point. But um, back, back in those days and pre the end, it was still weekly residencies were still actually on the cards and you know and a regular thing and there were you know there were a lot of a lot of regular things to do and, and um, I had a mad period of about a year a year to two years where every Friday I'd play at Busby's every Saturday I'd play at the park in Kensington High Street with Frankie Valentine and Dave Angel and Frankie and Dave would alternate and then I'd play at the Astoria after that and then on Sunday mornings play at Busby's again and then Sunday evenings play at the Limelight. And that was like every week and it was just nuts. I remember when I was working with Leo in the studio and C and, and this whole concept of, you know, we're going to open a nightclub came up. And I remember it going from just being an idea to being a conversation and a chat to becoming... A reality to becoming a sort of we've got the place we've got it secured to to floor plans being brought into the studio blueprints being looked at and all these things happening i remember the day that that they called up and said we're we ready to turn the lights on and check the lights out you know the whole thing um 
And compared to now, Clubland back then was a lot healthier in my eyes than what it was. There weren't loads of great spaces um, being used or, or new spaces at all. Um, quite a few smaller things had been going on for a little while, like Bar Roomba and things like that. Obviously, fabric didn't exist at that point. And, you know, when the end end came along, it was kind of billed as a super club as well, you know, which which I think only Ministry of Sound had, had, had that kind of label. And um, it, it, it was it was an extremely exciting time. Um, I believe that any venue, any new venue, takes X amount of time to develop its soul and its spirit. And it was the same with the end, you know, it was like... It was all so new and so fresh, but you know, over a period of time, which didn't take too long, you know, it started to really develop its own character and personality, and you know, it was the most incredible place. Were there sort of ways from the start that you were kind of looking to differentiate yourself uh, from what was out there? Did you have a game plan? Yeah, I mean, I I had always felt, you know, that, that I still feel today. I, th I think that when you're you know, this is a sweeping generalization, but I always think that when you're young, you should be into kind of a bit more avant-garde things. I mean, it always amazes me how many young people sort of veer towards things that are very commercial and obvious and simple. But I felt that what had happened when, from the days of when I was into clubbing, you know, the 17, 18, the Acid House, which was at that point very cutting edge, through the big raves, then through things like Handbag House and Hardcore, it's sort of been a bit commandeered into a slightly different one. I know Mr. C felt very similar. We also felt clubs didn't really care for the people going to them. So whether it was kind of the way we did the dance floor, the way we gave free water, at the, you know, the drinking fountain, things like that, we wanted to make the club a place that you, you know, clubbers wanted to go to. I think that we were too avant-garde when we started. I mean, we used to do things like the first year, Saturday nights were things like Cyclone, which was an experimental drum and bass meets techno night. I mean, Damien was telling me that he was sort of playing at it early on, uh, Damien Lazarus. And I, I don't remember that, but I'm sure it's true. And it was like, it was Paul Ripp's night, do you remember? I mean, it was just so experimental to be a Saturday night in the West End. And it was like lost and, you know, things like that remain throughout the club. But you learn, you know, you come at it, you know, the truth is I came at it with all sorts of ideas, you know, most of it very ill-informed, you know, I, some idealistic which were nice and some were just sort of I remember sort of thinking oh well we're not going to invite the press and we're not going to do this and all things that actually then take you a couple of years to catch up and build relationships again because you pissed the press off and you know you, you just do it because you think you're being absolutely true to your notion of what the underground is but obviously everything in life you have to work a way of making it work so we would come at it I would say quite sort of militant about certain things and some of them proved to be very correct some of them we needed educating just going back to what you were saying Matthew um was there kind of a, a definite point at which you felt that the club had found its feet yes I, I'm, I'm sure there was a definite point I, I can't tell you exactly what it was I mean you know it we, we played every single month from the day the club opened till till the day it shut once a month and you know a few other things thrown in I'd say Within the first year, it had found its feet as a space and, uh, and on the map. You know, obviously, there, there are lots of other kind of dynamics that, that came into that. But I think that, you know, I think it was just early days, little things, teething problems, slight changes in design, slight changes in concepts, slight changes in, in the way things were run and all of those things put together. You know, you know, lots of little things, you know, but I think that within a year, I think it had really found its feet. 
I mean, I'll give, I'm just going to add something. I was thinking of something. When we opened, the whole team that ran the end, apart from the people who worked in terms of drinks and bar and sound, consisted of me, Claudia, and the office junior, Chris Lahr. That was it. That was the office. And by the time the end closed, there were probably 25 people working in the office. Should there have been 25 to begin with? That's what I mean about you just have, no, you know, you just really, really don't have a go. For me, the moment I think it clicked was we opened in December... 95 new year's eve 1996 to 97 was the moment and we used aka as an illegal space because then it was just empty and we had it as a warehouse space we just did it up and it was absolutely rocking and then the club started to take form and in 97 we started getting in you know from the off the things like the gay night on sunday dtpm was a huge hit but then in january 97 we signed straight uh full cycle ram and uh skint with fat boy slim as resident so that's when it started to begin to get you know get an identity and we began to learn a lot more how to make the club work did you set out with that model of um kind of em- employing labels and getting label nights in because it, it seemed to be like a constant i don't believe that the club should take center stage the whole time i'm not a, f- a fan of you know the way the ministry did it to a certain extent how fabric did it. it's like they're at the center stage and then the other people are sort of behind which i understand why people do it like that but i always believed that longevity serves by having the club in a backspace and you are a space that you work with different people you you know absolutely pick the people to work with you but you give them the chance for the platform and i still felt that that keeps things fresh audiences it, it's just otherwise you so I think you get forced down certain music policies and things. And it's not that it changed that much. You know, Saturdays in the end was always house and techno, but house and techno could stretch from Richie Horton to Frankie Knuckles if you wanted it to. But I think that the end result of that was that, as a whole, in general, people, A, that lived in London and B, that came to London, knew that it didn't really matter what night of the week it was or what week of the month it was, that a safe bet for them having a great night out was going to the end. And I think that's because of that ethos, you know. Um, where were your heads at musically in the first few years, would you say? First few years, well, it was... Apparently, we started Tech House, didn't we? <laughs> yeah. Um, it was, uh, there was this whole period with... Uh, it was us, Mr. C, Terry Francis and Nathan Coles and Dave Mothersole and all this kind of sort of Croydon crew of, of people yeah. that, that were kind of... Well, it's definitely a London sound, you know, yeah. I, I, whatever anyone else is. It definitely came from a, a, the warehouse sound of London, the idea of sort of... The way I used to describe it was house for the boys and techno for the girls. It was kind of, you know, it was just a little bit of house, but with a bit... A bit the kind of house music that we had always liked originally you know with the sound that comes from sort of chicago and detroit so it's got a bit of edge to it and it's a, you know a little bit more i guess cutting and fit in, in you know so musically that's where we were kind of at but there was something else going on f- i guess for me very personally because i was pushing the breakbeat sound um when the club opened as well i used to run a label called plank which was breaks um and i ran it until until I felt like I'd pushed it as far as it could go and that I, I genuinely felt that that the rest of the scene wasn't actually developing. It was almost regressing. I stopped doing it. But we used to do a, a night called Subterrain and um, Mr. C and various guests used to do the main room and we used to do the lounge. We didn't swap that until much later on, until quite a few years later. Um, 
but it was musically it was the tech house thing we talked about but i also was playing a lot of this 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 stuff and it was an amazing period because people were coming up and they were they weren't asking what the name of of this tune or that tune was they were asking what kind of music it was that i was playing and and for me that was a, a real buzz you know because it was like people were like what is this you know uh, uh, you know i i guess i kind of miss a bit of that these days you know i, I feel like there's been so much that's come and gone and everything's so saturated that it's nigh on impossible to be able to to say you know what is this anymore and so for for that musically in that way it was also very very exciting were you guys comfortable with the tech house term and when did that first get thrown up um i can't tell you exactly when i remembered sort of doing interviews or things reviews in records were probably around 97 it seems to be around the time that it started to get used as a term. Might have been ninety six, but I, I'm thinking around ninety seven. Um, I never liked too much being pigeonholed because the trouble is, when it moves on, you're kind of left with what was. And, and we, you know, in our recording, I mean, the first album, Low Life, I don't think had any four to the floor on the album. It was it was all sort of stretching from kind of very slow breaks, you know, almost trip hop really kind of inspired people like Crude and Dorfmeister. Right through to even a couple of drum and bass tracks. Well, we actually made ourselves two rules, basically. The first rule was that we weren't going to do any four to the floor, and the second rule was that there weren't any other rules. And it really worked at the time. Yeah. Uh, and so, but having said that, we were aware we were part of a collective of people doing things, and End Recordings was putting out a lot of those kind of tracks, and uh, Oblong, and Wiggle, and, you know, it, it was definitely part of something. Um, unfortunately, I never felt that, you know, as Matt says about the, some of the other labels in breaks, and I felt the same with Tech House, some of the production and things, you know, like in 2004, when you saw 2003, 2004, when all the, a lot of the German labels really exploded, there were loads of great producers, and they kept pushing it and pushing it and pushing it, and there was loads of great stuff. I felt in England that there wasn't, it sort of started something, but it didn't really take it that much further. I mean, I felt we took things quite far production-wise, but a lot of people, you know, when you had in the scene in Germany, you had like loads of people producing great music, and I think that that kind of limited it a little bit. Do you feel like if it was in the internet era, then maybe it would have exploded in the in a similar way? Possibly. I, I, I one of the, the, I mean, I'm sure we're going to talk about this a bit later, but we've had a very strong relationship with with Brazil for the last 14 years, and if you go back to 2008, which is the first time we went over there. Um, 1998, you mean? Sorry, 19, <laughs> 1998. If you go, if you go back to 1998, which is the first time I went over there, um, apart from the obvious things that we love about the country, that one of the things that really blew my mind in São Paulo was that the resident local DJs were playing our sound that we were playing in London before they were kind of playing it out of London and our tracks and our remixes, and I was just like, okay, and this is you know a country where. There's only like, you know, a couple of record shops and the import tax is massive, but this is the stuff they're buying and they're playing. And it was really inspirational to me to see that the music had reached like that. You have so, an idea of how that happened? Not really. Not no, really. I'm not really. It generally I'm, happens with one. Re I mean, I know that from like when we went to Argentina a couple of years later um, with Clubland, with Hernan Catanel, I know he'd been to London and done the shopping in all the shops where we were doing the music. So I think that that's how that got taken back. Yeah, so your relationship with the country was very much based on on the type of sounds that you were pushing, you say? 
That was the icing on the cake for me personally. I mean, there was a lot of the other. The cake was a lot of other things. There was a lot of, <laughs> lot of other sort of decorations on the cake, which was rather, 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 rather pleasing in the eye um, and the ear. And it was. No, no it's, you know. it's, a, it's a whole thing there. But yeah, yeah. That, that, of course. But we, the thing is, it's like anywhere where you feel a connection and you feel welcomed, you naturally get an affinity towards, you know, it's uh, countries in the whole history of our DJ career, countries where we went time and time and time again and built up a thing, you know, and I'm sure it's true for all DJs, you naturally feel something for, you know, you visit a place once and you never go back, it's, it's, you know, it's just... Also, a- at the same time we were doing that music, you had people like Phil of Pure Science that was making fantastic tech house, but he was like performing live with his Ensonic ASR1 keyboard and then you had... Labels like Tango and Siesta and the San, all the San Francisco. Yeah, Hippie people. and Halo and those. Yeah, those, they, they yeah. Were, you know, with their take, you know, with their slightly kind of, slightly techy but very kind of sort of tribally American. Yeah, and then and then you had all these kind of labels from sort of down the south coast and things like Primitive Urges and stuff like that. So you, you had like a sort of a core of people that were making some like really 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 cool stuff. Now on the subject of labels, you mentioned then recordings, which was set up quite soon after the club opened. Yeah, like the same month yeah okay and what was the kind of aim thinking with the with the whole thing well you know there wasn't i wouldn't say there were huge lofty aims it was just to sort of do a, a good label of music you know from the kind of style of mu- the sound that we were putting out and and it developed and one of the things we got because we had obviously a lot of people passing through so Juan Atkins Richard and I did a track called Someone I think it was number 2 or 3 on end recordings and Juan Atkins um played for Lost in the first couple of months and he did an amazing remix because Mr C had the studio. So we used to do that kind of thing. Sometimes if people were in town to play, they would then stay and do a mix. And that developed the, the label quite a lot, I think, early on. And it's right that you released your first album for yeah. and um did you kind of always see yourself as a an album act? Did you always sort of have ambitions to work towards an album? Well, it certainly wasn't very long after we started working together before we decided to do an album, that's for sure. When did you start, just to put it like, kind of rough year on it? 98, we started okay. the album. It took probably about 15 months, yeah. you know, not continuously, but, you know, in and out. I think albums for us, you know, even when we did the last one um, and we knew we were splitting up, I think for us, recording in that way and being freer to work in that way is really, really attractive. I think our... You know, singles-wise, we've made many, many good singles. But, you know, if you look at the history, maybe recently it's changed and there are more um, DJs making good albums. But in the history, it wasn't that many were making albums that sort of, you know, did have one or two good tracks and the rest was just tracks. Um, Whereas I think that we were able, we felt artistically able to really express ourselves on albums. I mean, the truth is, if Low Life hadn't exploded in the way it did, we probably wouldn't have gone on the way that we did. It was definitely the stepping stone. And to pick up on something you were saying before, you put a no four four rule yeah. on the album. What was the thinking behind that? I think that we were just quite enjoying being experimental in the studio. I think we were just quite enjoying taking that aspect of uh, of writing music away and just seeing what we came up with. We were well, the thing is, for apart from our last album, all the albums that we've done, not the singles, but all the albums that we've done have been very free of boundaries um, in terms of being pigeonholed into certain, like one type of genre, you know, and, and that applied from, through Low Life and Feels Closer and Nightworks. And I think that it was a freedom that we really enjoyed having. And I think that it was a, a really, really good thing for us, I think, until 
until the third album, at which point the whole scene was changing so vastly with the whole minimal explosion, mm. 2005. I think it confused people, um, a new generation of people at that point. Um, but for us, it wasn't like, okay, no 4-4, period just because we don't like it we were playing it all day long you know this was just about us exploring different musical ideas and everything from jazz to ambient to dub reggae to down tempo to chill out to to drum and bass style things to breaky type things to hip-hop type things to working with singers to, you know the whole shebang and we were just enjoying putting it all together in, in that way and also there was a few other things. We we wanted to be able to vary the tempo on the album, um, yet we wanted it all joined. And you didn't have all things like Ableton and all the different things. So we wanted there to be a fluidity in, in, in the way the album worked. And also, from my perspective, I was at the end all the time. And then, so there was like nights with people like Kruder and Dorfmeister and all that. There was skin. There was the drum and bass. You know, there was techno. There was house. And all these different things were influencing the sound of the album. Because you imagine a lot when you make music, you know, in all the years of the end... Always when I was making music, I imagined it in the main room at the end. I imagined here, once I was making the tune in the studio, that's where my mind would project to, to, to imagine the track. And so those influences work back and forth from being in the club and hearing people play to going into the studio and making the music, then imagining it there. Um, so bearing in mind the success of your first album, being signed to Excel for your follow-up album, were you feeling any kind of pressure at this point it's massive <laughs> um you, i mean xl is the most amazing label um and it's even better now than it was then and it was amazing then um the step if i if, and you know we've discussed this many many times on many travels and studios i think that if there was ever a point we needed we never had a manager really and if there was ever a point we needed a manager it was probably at that point because well, because every single big label wanted to sign us at that point. We went to we went and met with everyone, and some of the meetings were quite positive, and some of them were just like no way. I mean, yeah. we won't name names, but it was like, I mean, you know, in all honesty, James Avell was like you know massive, massive, massive L and B fan, and you know, he wanted to sign us to Mowax, and at the time, Mowax was based in the offices of XL and stuff. But we kind of wanted to go with XL. We felt it was more. The one for us and more consistent, you know? Yeah, and Excel were brilliant, but the, the, the reality is that when you're on a label like that, you asked me was, what was the thing behind the label. Well, you need a game plan. And I think the thing is, you know, I look at certain artists today, the way they do things, immediately setting up their own label, agency, da, 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 you know, it's very, very, it's much more business-minded in, in, in that kind of a way. Matt and I were always really serious in the studio and I was always really serious running the end. But in terms of being an artist and DJing, there's a part of me still, even to, I like being part of the party. And what I mean is I don't mean like the nutter on the speaker. I just mean I don't, it's about making it really, really good, the music, or making it, you know, the club really, really good. I'm not always thinking of the, the business, business aspect. And I think that when you're with a label like Excel, you need to have a very clear plan of everything that you want to achieve, second, third album, who's going to be doing the videos. And if you don't have it, you need to have a manager who has it. And I think for us, it was brilliant being signed and obviously a huge platform around the world but it was it felt at the time a lot of pressure it was quite a quick curve that we were kind of suddenly on mm, do you feel like you made mistakes at that time i think that we made mistakes i think that they made mistakes yeah. i think that yes of course i think look xl no one can question their success or or their intuition when it comes to all of these things i think that their vision of 
what we were to become and our vision of how we wanted to stay were two separate entities you know i think that you know with nightworks that was three quarters of an album by the time it came out because there were tracks that should have, been, should have been on there that we couldn't get clearance on, which we couldn't believe because they were dealing with, like, they'd signed the Avalanches at the time who had sampled every single person known to man and they'd managed to clear everything and put it out. And we were getting turned down on things like that. Um, but the truth of the matter is, and they knew what they were doing with the Prodigy and they knew what they were doing with Basement Jacks. And I think that in our hearts of hearts we weren't going to actually make the sort of music that they could really sell to massive audiences. I don't think that that's the kind of music we really make. And I think if we had made it, I don't think it would have really been us being true to ourselves. No, that was... And also, the, we lost, as Matt says, we lost about three tracks at the last minute. And this is where it's pressure. They're like, well, the release date's got to stay the same. And we're like, but we've lost three tracks. And they're like, well, you've got to make another one very quickly. And the thing is... The three tracks we lost were very good, good, good tracks. And the thing is, you, you don't, you know, when you're in the studio, you don't just churn out, you know. And there, there were already three or four quite big tracks on the album, apart from Love Story. This would have made it, you know. And that's pressure, because you don't, you know, if you, and we didn't know, you know, maybe a manager would have gone, well, I'm sorry, screw your release date. Da, da, da. We didn't feel comfortable being in that position. You know, we we didn't really know whether we could have throw our weight around. I mean, maybe we could have done, but it, it didn't feel like that at the time. And we were a little unlucky, and, and also, you know, unfortunately, both for us and for them, you know, regarding Love Story coming out as, as a single and when they released it as, as a single and it charted in the top 10 and stuff, and that was with the vocal from Kings of Tomorrow for Finally, which matched together, they couldn't get clearance on that anywhere except the UK to release it as a single. So, yes, it went, like, top 10, top 5 in, in England, but that could have been the top 10 all over the world if, if we'd had a little bit more luck, you know. So we were a little unlucky in some ways, but at the same time, very, very proud of the album that we did do with them and, and really, you know, proud to have been part of it as well. I mean, it's a very great thing. I mean, none of it's in any way bitter because it, it was a brilliant, brilliant opportunity. But when you look back on your career, you can say, well, if we'd handled that slightly differently and that had been slightly different, it probably could have been a different kind of thing. And that's why when we went to New York to make Feels Closer, we made, as Matt says, an album that was very you know, jazzy and it was really cool, loads of live music. But the truth is, at the same time, was all the minimal and everything. But we, we made mistakes too. Like We decided we didn't want to play it to them until it was almost ready, which wasn't the right thing to do, I don't think. I think that we should have been playing them tracks as and when we were doing them so that we could have had a bit more direction rather than sort of three quarters way down the line thinking, oh, we've done all this work and they're not really quite feeling it. To go back to Love Story that you mentioned, I'm right in saying it was originally released in another form back in 2000. 1999, 2000, yeah. It came out on a black label um, and it was called Untitled and we released 500 copies and then another 500 copies, and then another 500 copies, and then another 500 copies, and then stopped. But, you know, it was, it was, didn't sound like anything else at the time. And, you know, we were like, mm, well, what should we do with this? I mean, it definitely sounds good, but what is it? How, what bracket does it fit into and stuff? And, um, and it organically got picked up by the right people all over the world, managed to get, seem, seemingly managed to get copies of it. And, and it started to turn into something else. But yes, it came out in another format first, which is pretty much why XL wanted to sign us, actually. Yes, sure. Why everyone was interested initially, yeah. yeah. So it, it certainly still had enough momentum where it could be put on the album comfortably, 
couple of years later. Yeah. yeah. Well, the things, the things you see is different to now. Now you have, I don't know how many thousands of tracks come out a week. Then, you know, making a track and going to the studio, it was like there was a lot of music, but it wasn't anything like the amount of music that, that is made and, and released now. Tracks had a life, you know, in, in terms of they really could bubble, 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 and then kind of explode. And there was probably a lot more people buying music. There definitely was a lot more people buying music. Who put the finally vocal on there? Well, I'll tell you what happened. Two things happened. First of all, we DJ'd at uh, Creamfields, Argentina. Um, The first one, wasn't it? Yeah. And I was, you know, obviously playing vinyl back then. And I played, I was playing on three decks and I played Love Story, the original, with on the first deck and on the second deck was the acapella of Kings of Tomorrow and on the third deck was like a tech house techno loop record and I mean it went off like ridiculous I was like literally I was like almost crying with like joy basically (laughs) I was just like oh my god because I hadn't I don't practice my sets and I didn't realize that this would sound like this when you put this on top of this and then add this to it at the time it was just like oh this seems like a good idea it was ridiculous and uh, i was going out with this girl at the time and she's like my two favorite tunes ever so i said i'll go in the studio and make a special version for you and just give it to you as a little present i've done that and then a and i guy at xl wanted to release love story with a vocal as a single and he tried putting various different singers on top and it sounded shit. Yeah, every and Eventually, I said, look, Ben, this is the only thing that works. This is what works. So they licensed it. Did you feel a big knock-on effect from having a top 10 hit? Well, the thing is, still today, you know, even when we played last Saturday, every single place you go, literally, there'll be someone who wants to hear Love Story. Everywhere. Every single place. Doesn't matter how many times, you you know. How do you handle those uh, requests? Uh, well, if it's a, a decade on, if it's a great night, and we've been playing for hours, and it's the very end of the night, I'm totally chilled about it, you know. But if we're playing for two hours and it's in a cool club and it's we've got tons of new music, I won't play it. Not in some arsy way. It's just it's not relevant to what we're doing right now, so I won't play it. I sort of feel if you've done a whole whole night and it's that magic moment, the last half hour, where it's one more, one more, and all of that, then, yeah, it's fine. It's You've shared a kind of thing together. It's Do you feel like it was a kind of good springboard for bookings at, at the time? And Yeah, I mean, there was, there was some very interesting things happened, actually, that I am not aware of have ever happened again, actually. Um, we When we signed to XL, we went live. We did a summer of, like, we did 12 live gigs at festivals, um, some of which were amazing. And... We did Homelands in England, uh, in Winchester. And at that festival, we walked around in between playing and we heard Judge Jules playing it on one stage, Jeff Mills playing it on another stage, Eric Murillo playing it on another stage, Pete Tong playing it on another stage. And it was like, okay, so where do you get a tune that Judge Jules and Jeff Mills are both playing at the same festival at the same time? And so for me, that was just like the most ridiculous thing ever. And, and you know, and but it was definitely a springboard. It was definitely a springboard for gigs. It, it, I, at the time, I, did, I personally didn't really, you know, I was quite a party boy at the time as well as doing all this stuff. And I, I was just kind of rolling with it and just enjoying it. But I didn't really take on board what it, what it well, was. Well, you always think meant. as well, we always in the studio, you always think you'll make other things that will hit in the same way you're not thinking in that moment that forever you'll be marked by that one tune it's just part of what you're doing at the time and it's so far because when we released low life 
the track Deep South was huge on that album. So we just thought, oh, well, the next one will have you know, another one. Um, just going back to the end, I'm right in saying it was around the time of uh, Love Story that you set up all night long as a kind of night yes. concept. I think 2002, yeah. Yeah, I mean, do you feel like the night kind of really cemented your reputation in the sort of London scene? Well, I think two things had gone on because I remember having a conversation with Leo about doing a night called All Night Long and playing all night in the main room. You know, we had had a lot of success with, with the Lamb Bushwacker productions and Love Story and the singles and, and Shining Through, uh, all of that stuff. Uh, you know, we were really busy DJing all over the place. But we'd taken it beyond as far as it could go in the lounge as, as that yeah. being, like, being the room that we could play in. I mean, we without wanting to sound egotistical, we just completely destroyed it in there for like three years, you know, like mm. every single month. And it was like, well, let's... Let's try something else. Let's move on. Let's do our own thing now. You know? um, for those who didn't go to the club, what was the difference between the two rooms? The lounge was probably around 300, 350 capacity, and the main room was about five, probably around 600, 650. Yeah. Maybe 700. The lounge was where the bar <laughs> was and, you know, where the proper bar was. It was a lot lighter. Um, it, it was sofas, you know, more relaxed. The main room was, you know, DJ booth right in the middle, massive sound system, big four big stacks. Um, that was the room. You know, yeah. That was the big room. Were you very much still known as a uh, tech house act around this time, would you say? I think it moved on a bit from there. I think labels had sort of drifted away. You know, the, the tech house scene hadn't really... It didn't really disappear, but, but it wasn't pushed on enough in production. So other things had come in... To, it was the era a lot of probably 99 to 2001 was Danny Tanaglia. It was that kind of slightly tech house, but into tribal and that kind of thing had sort of, you know, was the sort of more the, the sound of house. And techno had sort of still was huge in the forms of Laurent Garnier, Sven Vath and Richie and all those people. But it wasn't as in vogue as it came again two or three years later. What were some of the successful nights around that time period? It would have been Trash, I guess. Trash started around then, because I remember going to Errol's house around that the kind of time of love story. Um, trash was on a Monday. There was all the drum mess. I'm just trying to think what, what would have else been introduced in that period. Um, we had the year where we had Twice As Nice. We had... What? I feel like there's a story there. <laughs> there's a huge story there. Um, because there's the whole period when Fabric opened from 1999 to 2000. Um trying to think it'll come to me i remember i can't remember exactly 2002 trash was one of the main things but that was already quite a big thing to start on a you know a monday night yeah i mean did you feel from the off that that was kind of going to be a i, I hesitate but I, I was going to describe it as kind of era defining but it yeah. was for a lot of people wasn't it um when it first first started no because you'd have to have seen the trash flyers from where they were and there was sort of 150 people going and it was almost like sort of one of those nights you might see in camden underworld if you but once you met Errol and you actually went down there and heard the music and you started to see the crowd and it, how quickly it developed and the stylistic, you know, the way it was. And then once he started to sort of A&R all the bands down there, it was, you could see very quickly something was brewing and it, and it exploded quite fast. Um, just to move things on slightly, you set up Old Meto yeah. in 2006, was it? Yeah. I firstly wanted to ask kind of where you guys were at musically and what was it? I don't know, what was it that you were looking to put across that maybe you hadn't been able to with other label ventures? I think that the reason we started Olmeto was just purely so that we could 
have an outlet to make our music, put our music out on without running a label and without wanting to nurture other acts and artists and the whole shebang that went with that. Because Leo was running the club, I was engineering, making my own music, making music with Leo, DJing, whatever, and the running a label on top of it and, you know, lots of sort of sort of doughy-eyed producers that are expecting to become rich from putting out a couple of tracks and, you know, one you know, wanting to... It's a lot of work to run a label really well. Um, yeah, we... we we just wanted some, you know, a home for our own music. At the time, the idea of just doing a label that only our music would come out and was quite original and it would do things. But actually, in the interim, these are the things you and in retrospect. Obviously, in the past five or six years, it's actually been a lot more about label collectives and the power of that. But at the time, when we had just come out of the relationship with Excel, it felt like the right thing to do. And it was kind of, you, you know, it, it was good. I mean, I think we'll finish the label on about release number 40, which, you know... It, and we put out some very, very good music on it. But I, time again, would it have been better to be on one of the other burgeoning labels? Maybe, you know, mm. but it was, that was the thinking behind it. So at the time you just wanted to be kind of selfish, but in a positive sense. Just to... Yeah, just to do our own creative hub and, you know, do something that was just, we could put music out on no pressure. You know, we made five singles one year, four singles the next, seven one year. It was all kind of very relaxed. Yeah. Did you have an album project in mind when the label was started? We had the album that we had done, which we didn't play to Excel, the one done in New York, which was Feels Closer, was the first release on the album. Which was kind of a was quite marked change in sound for you, I guess. Lots of live instruments. Yeah. And a, was it a wildly different recording process? Yeah, it was. It was the first time for me that I'd been able to take a back seat and actually be the producer and not the producer and the engineer. And it was a joy as well, because what we do is we rented a, a loft apartment in Soho in New York, and we rented a studio in Brooklyn, and we DJed at the weekends around the States, and then we worked during the week in the studio. We got the train there back, back in Subway. the... Subway, it was great. And we were, you know, we were working with some, a couple of really cool guys down there, and we were recording musicians from, like, the local pizza delivery guy to Mino from Weather Report. Like, these guys were quite well connected. And it was a really, really fun process. And what we basically did when we'd finished recording was came back and bought the same Pro Tools rig that they had in their studio and just took all the stems and took it back, back to my place and started putting it together. It was so, actually a real joy of an album to make. It was, it, But, as Matt said earlier, that the problem was that the sound of it that maybe if we'd done it on XL with a few more bigger singles would have been just right for a growth as an artist in our bushwhacker. But when the scene was kind of venturing back in a really good way musically to the underground, it was slightly out of step. And even though it did very well, I think that that for us was the beginning of being more out of step with the way the scene was going. You know, maybe it's a natural curve that happens anyway, but it feels to me, when I look back, that's a bit of a marking point. And, it, you know, you could tell how, how much things had moved on because we were releasing singles and the press was just talking about the remixes yeah. and not the singles. And that never happened before, and that was that was a big shift. Um, to kind of pick up on what I see as being really the next big chapter for you guys with 2009, with the, uh, with the closure of yes. the end. I wanted to ask firstly, when you kind of got to thinking that maybe this was going to be the case and you'd kind of come around to the idea of, um, you know, of moving on and maybe shutting up shop? Well, always, and I even say this with what I'm about to embark on now, I never want to do the same things ad infinitum, you know what I mean? And the, with the club, 
my sister, myself, all the people involved, we had done it and it had been so successful, so successful, so successful. And it was like, well, we have an opportunity here. We'd never had, all the offers we'd had to buy had been crap. And it was like a really, really good offer. And we were like, well, what's the situation? We don't take the offer. And the person who wanted the offer owned the whole block. So once our lease came up in, I think it would have been about another eight years at that point, he would have just taken it anyway. So the offer was like, do you continue for eight years and hope everything stays at the very, very top? on a business decision or do you take the money and say okay well we have the choice to close this by our own thing a club then was created by us very successful closed and it's a very very difficult thing because I probably could have easily happily done another three or four years you know in terms of my enjoyment level but would I want that to be the only thing I ever did and that was my feeling at the time you know it was 38 so I was like is that it or am I going to take the leap and sort of do more? And I know that's what my sister wanted. And I think in the end, um, it was a very difficult decision. The past couple of years have been, tr- you know, very tricky. But if I had my time again, I'd definitely do the same thing. Um, yeah. And then to reflect a little bit on the time period, it was quite a um, tough period of time for London clubbing, wasn't it? Because it was a loads space- shut just and all through different circumstances. But, you know, a lot closed and it hasn't really... London hasn't totally recovered since, I don't think. Actually, I was going to ask you that. Do you think that we're still in kind of feeling the effects from those closures? Not because in any grandiose way because of what the end did, but I think that, you know, ministry's one thing, fabric's another thing. The end brought a totally different dimension to the scene. Um, Of course, you have, you know, the burgeoning over the past five years, great warehouses in East London and lots of other different things, but... There isn't so much definition in warehouses. People do a warehouse party, they come, a lot of people copy each other, so so and so does one at the warehouse party, then three other people are booking the same kind of thing. You know, it's a little bit repetitive. And having done lots of warehouse parties, you can't do anything like you could do in a club because it's so expensive to put on a warehouse party that to sort of get the sound at the right level, the lights at the right level, the bar's nice, the drink's cold, not freezing cold because it's February in London and there's holes all over the warehouses, you know, and everyone's in there. They're, they're things that you can't really do. So it's, it, 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 you can't build in the same way. And you can only have to look at somewhere like Berlin with the amount of clubs it's got. A scene can build when there's lots of things going on because, you know, so-and-so sees, well, they're doing that with that night. That's really good. Okay, well, we want to do this and you know the competition's healthy and people do things warehouses competition isn't the same kind of thing it's just a night and competition creates better product better things for the clubs better for the public and a better scene so i i don't think you know london isn't as good as it was you know i mean places like berlin long took over but i don't think it's because londoners aren't you know the scene's not good in the crowd and good i i think it's lacking a little bit I think, I mean, one the one thing that is undeniable but, you know, amazes me um, in some ways is that when, when the end closed and, um, you know, the closing party was, you know, the whole build-up and the closing party was just, I mean, obviously for me and Leo, very, very personal, but it was just like absolutely incredible. But, you know, it was going to get turned into offices and then they decided to keep running it as a club and they called it the den and, you know, basically... There wasn't really too much thought that went into it. But, I mean, I don't, you know, I don't know anybody who went back in that door. Anyone from, from then till now. It was like the club closed and it was gone, even though it was still there. It was, and that's, 
you know, I'm I'm proud of that. I'm proud of that fact that 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 Leo created something like that, and that you know when it was done, it was done. You know, it wasn't a question of well, someone else can just come in and open the doors and turn the sound system on and put a night on because the soul went with it. You know, was that kind of did it piss you off that it did end up happening in that way? Yeah, but you know what you. On a margin of the truth is you can't be arrogant enough to think you've got a right to exactly what happens after. It would have been neater what was meant to happen to happen. But um, they were victims, the people who bought it, of the recession and the crisis. So they couldn't get the planning permission. They couldn't get the, the money from the bank to do it. Foolishly, they should have probably taken their time to find the right people. They took anyone who came in. They ran it into the ground. They lost the license. So the building can't even have a license anymore. So it wasn't... It, it wasn't their fault, and I, I, I don't feel I have a right to be pissed off about it. I mean, in a way, I was culturally, I was glad that it kind of unfolded in the way that it wasn't. It would have been a shame if someone had done a carbon copy and all the nights just went back in there. That, that probably would have hurt a little bit, but that didn't happen, so, you know. So sort of um, out of the uh, ash of the end, you kind of began the Shake It concept. And um, What was the, the kind of motivation um, in, in starting this? Well... Obviously, we needed a home, first and <laughs> foremost. Um, we sat down, had a meeting, came up with a name between us, had a good space, did the first party with Laurent Garnier. I mean, you know, everyone was... It was almost like the excitement, the euphoria of the of the closing of the end and that the, the whole same crowd came down to the first par parties. And, you know, it, it was great. We put a really good show on, put amazing sound systems in, rocked it. It was proper warehouse and yeah really 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 good um 2009 2010 they were great yeah it became it became more and more difficult um but you know it was okay this is what we're doing now we're going to keep moving around you know we've been in the same place every month for the last 13 years now we're going to keep keep moving around different spaces do different size parties you know oh, there's some really 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 cool things um the last 12 months of shake it were very difficult it was uh Finding the spaces became harder. There became more rules and regulations. We couldn't get the sound system that we wanted. We weren't allowed to do this. We weren't allowed to do that. Everything became... Some of the fun was sort of sucked out of it a little bit, you know. Yeah. Was it a little bit of a shock to the system having to, you know, take on those considerations? Massive shock. I'll never forget the first one. I walked in, I was like, I don't want to be doing this. <laughs> like, I mean, actually, when the party got going, I was really enjoyed it, but it was like, I walked in, it was freezing. And it was, I was just like, God, <laughs> this isn't what I'm used to. Oh, by the end, I was used to rocking up at the end and everything was kind of wonderful. Um, but no, I, I loved the energy. The first couple of years, we had great guests. It was, it was really, really good. And, and the thing is, in 2009, firstly, doing it you know, from home, so you're organising the sound, booking the DJs. And when you're at the, the end, by the, you know, the truth is, I only had to say, yeah, it's Leo from the end, and the booking was, you know, it's just a question of a bit of negotiation. But one of a sudden it was just, well, we're a warehouse party shaker. Even though I had all the connections, you're really competing you and 20 people for the same booking. And then suddenly everything gets a little little bit harder. And the more businessy it becomes, it's a bit like talking about not doing the label, the, slightly, the more the joy is sucked out of it. And then you're kind of the sound. And all of a sudden you're working really, really, really hard. And the part is packed and you're earning less than you, half that you would if you just went rocked up and DJed anywhere. And on top of that, it was just like, you know, there were a couple of big DJs that that played for us, and they loved our Shake It gig. They smashed it. They the crowd loved them. They loved it so much 
that the next year they went and put on the same party in the same venue themselves. <laughs> but like two separate people in two separate venues on two separate dates. And that was like, okay, so we'd like to put you again. I oh, know, so we're already doing it. Yeah. And so that kind of left, you know, it was getting to a point where it was like, okay, and it's there's no loyalty here. There's no money in it. There's loads of work and a lot of pressure, you know, so. And it's different. You know, all the things, all the decisions that you take as the years go on, when you've done it all many, many times, your view on it is totally different. So whether it's DJing for me or making a track or putting on a party, I've done it so many, so many times that I have to be getting a joy out of it. Not so much the money is, is by the by, but if I'm not getting a lot of pleasure out of it, then I have to wonder why I'm doing it. Because part of me has got to be driven by the sort of the creativity and the experience being good. Once that sort of element starts to disappear, it gets harder to motivate yourself. So I wanted to ask about your latest album, which you've announced uh, is going to be your final album together. Yeah. When did you decide that it was going to be time to stop working together in the studio? I think the last 2011, we did a residency in Ibiza, um, at Amnesia, at Shake It. And I hated it. Um, I don't, I'm quite happy to say this in the press. <laughs> the end of my DJ career. Um, I, I really hated it. And something definitely shifted for me that summer in terms of, you know, I think when the end was there and subsequently when the early days of Shake It, I still felt a lot of positivity about everything. Something shifted and I felt, am I really that relevant anymore to the scene? You know, is there really a place for me that actually feels natural or am I slightly hanging in there? And I think that we felt not tired between Matthew and I as people, but we'd done it all together so many, so many times that... There was something cyclical about it. And it was, you know, the, the gigs would roll round. And still in 2011, the bookings were good. 2010, they were good. 2011, they were good. But it was like, are we, as a sort of entity, is it better we sort of draw it to a close? And, and Matt was beginning his own thing sort of concurrently and sort of end in a healthy way, both as friends, but also as a Leo and Bushwhacker. Or do we hang in there? And I don't think we ever really wanted to be in a position where we felt we were, you know... What's, what's the expression? Flogging a dead yeah. horse. Um, and during the, the course of the recording of the album, it just became sort of obvious to us, I think. Would you...? Yeah, I mean, the stopping production is completely tied to the stopping performing together as well because, you know, we're both going on to do separate things um, which don't really allow for the production to be carrying on in that way. Well, you know, I mean, there's, there's been a lot of change. I mean, you know, first of all, I shut down the studio and built a new studio at home. It's it's a lot smaller. I don't need all the space we had before, but we had a lot of space and a lot of freedom before. So, so there's that already. But yeah, look, at the end of the day, I think if you've tried lots and lots of different ways of trying to do the same thing and none of it really feels like it's amounting to live up to your hopes or your aspirations and it's not feeling that positive then I think the right thing to do is to move on you know and, and I think that with our music I, I'm very very proud of every single thing that we've done musically like you know I mean there might have been a couple of remixes 10 years ago that I thought were a bit average but you know <laughs> apart from that um, you know um, I really you know feel very very emotional about a lot of the music that we've written because we have put our hearts and souls into it and stuff but you know, I mean, we were releasing stuff on our Meta a couple of years ago 
and it was just coming and going like that. I knew that these were potentially big tracks and potentially good tracks, and it was just like, okay, no one's taking any notice of this anymore. You know, it doesn't matter what we do, no one's taking any mm. notice. Gigs, we've still, you know, we've had an amazing career of, uh, of gigs, and, and we, you know, even we just did our last tour, we just finished last month, you know, in South America, the, it was amazing. This month, I mean, you know, the gigs were you know, absolutely fantastic. You know, uh, you know, we're still, we've still been doing stuff in London, and we've had some great parties there as well. But you know, it just felt, it just felt tired. And at the end of the day, we're not spring chickens anymore. You know, we're not twenty five. We're forty, forty odd years old, and it's like, well, okay, we even do something radical, or just, or what? Mm. You know, so. You're stopping DJing now. Yeah, I mean, we're going to do. We've got five more parties together at the at Egg this year, and we've got all sorts of guests, and we'll do that together. I think that I, um, notwithstanding this idea of a small club that sort of whirls around my head, and if that occurred, then I would play a role in, in some way. Um, but yeah, I sort of, I'd say probably for about four or five years, I've thought about doing other things, and now it's a natural point to stop. And if I'm going to start again and do something totally new, I'd rather start again and do something completely new rather than sort of try to maintain something that, you know, I feel I've done. It's not that it's not great, and if I was 18 and walking to a club, I'd feel exactly the same way, and it's not there's not amazing music because there's loads of amazing music and loads of great DJs. But I feel for my part in it, I think the story's come to an end. I think I'll be hanging on through fear rather than through belief and I, it's not something I want to do we're still playing together every two months in London so it's not I don't do it anymore it's just you know I'm not touring on my own you know yeah. which is a lot different to I'm never going to play any records again yeah you because I, I will you know because once you are a DJ you'll always play records sometime or another because it's kind of part of your passion and um as I say, if I, if I do this other club, maybe, 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 maybe I'd, I'd keep going. But I think as a serious international DJ, it's definitely finished for me. I need to do different things. I, I'm concentrating on the family here. It's, it's, there's two or three things which I'm not going to talk about now because I hate to talk about things before I'm actually doing them. But there's two or three things that I'm working on. And if one of those comes through, it'll be a whole new different career. And, and that for me feels a better way to go. It'll mean the next couple of years will be difficult, but I think in the long run, it'll be more fulfilling. And Matthew, just be, I assume this is going to be your uh, primary focus. It's going to be my primary focus from now. Yeah. I mean, how do you see yourself sort of differentiating your solo output? Or are there still things that you kind of like to explore and kind of maybe didn't get to as a part of a duo? In all honesty, I'm struggling with the differentiation at the moment. I'm, I'm just, we tied up everything we were doing last year and I still wrote a load of music. Um, but... I haven't really found it in me to go in and, and, and deliberately be trying to make something different for the sake of it because it's a new name and it's, it's different. I'm still just just me, doesn't matter what I call myself, going into the studio, writing music and seeing how it's coming along and seeing how it's coming out. You know, obviously for things like Crosstown Rebels, if I write something and it, it, it's of a nature that I think that they'll be into it, I'll play it to them or whoever else I'm working with. But... I think that the, the the differentiation is only going to really come as uh, over time. I I don't know that it's even going to really be that. Um, there are risks involved. You know, I mean, I, I, there are risks of being pigeonholed. There are risks of being of it being over before it's even started. If I just concentrate on one thing, but 
We're just going to have to see. I mean, I'm, you know, I've got a new studio. I've got new synthesizers, new equipment. I've got a new name. I've got a new manager. I've got a new agent. I've got a new press officer. I've got a new logo. I've got new photos. I've got everything new. Now I have to go and make the goods and come up with the goods and do something really good. And, you know, I've got the tools and the right network, but it's really about, it's about what comes creatively, you know. I think it will for me. I, I think it's just a question, and it always is as an artist, is reconnecting with the public in the right way. And I, I, I have full confidence in him. I think for us as Leon Bushwick, I think to reconnect when you've already had so many peaks is, is trickier, but I think it will come as a new thing. I think it will take Matt a little bit of time just to establish an identity that works because that's really what it's about. You know, as I said before, you even turn the mics on, that when I, Andrew Weatherall said to me, you know, about... You'd, he'd, some of the best stuff he'd made was when he was out of the public eye. Some of it is, is just about the way his perception is so huge. I mean, I, I I think, you know, one of my weaknesses is I, I analyse things too much and I think that the key to all of this is just, you know, getting up in the morning and just writing and seeing what happens, seeing what comes along, you know. And, just being. You know, I'm sure that... <laughs> I'm sure that, you know, I'm sure that, 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 that there will be some exciting things coming out of it.